If you haven't yet, go ahead and pull out your Genesis scripture journals and turn in them. Where are we? To page 12. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. So I'll give you a second there to turn there. All right. Does it work? Thank you, guys. Let's see. Can everyone hear me in the back? (laughs) I will do my best. All right. Before we read um, our scripture this morning, uh, before we jump into Genesis 2, I want to encourage you to let your hearts believe that this scripture, this text, is true. Adam was a real person. Eve was a real person. They were not fictional people. They were not created by mankind or created by authors to just help explain where humans came from or why evil exists in the world. Genesis is not a fable like Pandora's box, and it's not an allegory like Pilgrim's Progress. Genesis chapter 2 is meant to help us believe that Adam and Eve in the garden were real. The events took place in a real location with real rivers, real lands, and the resulting consequence for Adam and Eve's actions are also very real. As real as the grass is under us, as real as the sun is scorching down on us, it is real. So, church, together, let's read Genesis 2, 4 through 17. Elizabeth, please, yes. Have your mic. So Elizabeth is going to come read Genesis 2 for us. Genesis 2, 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there is divided. it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So we begin our section of Genesis today with that little poem, um, the, uh, These Are the Generations. That serves as a header that a new section of the Genesis story is beginning. Um, you could also translate, uh, These Are the Generations. Uh, you could translate that as, This is the Story of. 
Um, this phrasing of these are the generations is used throughout Genesis to herald one story is finishing and a new story is starting. It's as good of a chapter break as we're really going to get. It functions a lot like the end of a scene in a stage play. Um, in the previous scene, we see God finally resting after all his work. The curtain is drawn closed. The stage lights dim. And the stage lights start to come back up and the curtain opens up again and the stage has been rearranged. Genesis 2-4 is the first time that we see this chapter break, uh, this change of scene where it says these are the generations of. We'll see it next in Genesis 5 where it says this is the book of the generations of Adam. And we'll see this phrase 11 more times in Genesis. So church, here we go. The curtain is opening, the lights are coming back on, and the new scene is starting. This is the story of the heavens and the earth when they were created and how God is revealing himself to his creation. Genesis 2 reveals aspects of God that we haven't seen yet in Genesis. Remember, Genesis was first written for the benefit of Hebrew slaves who had escaped slavery in Egypt and they're now preparing to enter into God's promised land. They may have heard stories about God. They may have seen God doing amazing miracles. And they might have heard these things passed down through storytelling. But here in Genesis, it's all written out for them to read and to remember. I want us to see some of the changes in perspective between Genesis 2 and and Genesis 1 because they were put there intentionally for our benefit. And if we don't see them, we will miss what the text is revealing about God. So imagine we just read Genesis 2 for the very first time. If you grew up going to church, you've probably read through Genesis a lot. Uh, So it might seem really familiar to you, but just imagine that you just heard it for the first time and you didn't know anything about God except for what you had learned in Genesis 2 and and what you knew from our study of Genesis 1. You know, in Genesis 1, we saw that God was powerful, powerful to make everything, give it direction and to give it purpose. But in Genesis 2, we're going to see how God is personal and how God abundantly provides. So if you take notes, we, it's a two-point sermon today. God is personal and God abundantly provides. Actually, uh, everyone, it's going to be easy. Everyone over here, shout personal. Oh, that, you could do better. Everyone over here, shout provides. Okay, so what's point one? What's point two? Okay, thank you. The picture of God that is painted in chapter one is very different from how he's painted in chapter two. And what that means is that God is revealing himself, his character, his image in chapter two. And it's an image of a God who is among us as a personal God. And it is an image of a God who gives us way, 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 way more than we need because he's our abundant provider. So to hammer this point one more time, if you're taking notes, God is personal and God abundantly provides. All right. So I'm going to show you three ways that God is revealing himself as personal through today's text. So where is God? Look in your scripture journals. Where is God in chapter two? Where is the story? Where is God located? Verse seven and eight give us a hint. So it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, in verse 7, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. This isn't a trick question. Where is God in chapter 2? God's on earth. He's forming things out of dust, and he's planting a garden. So let's flip back a couple pages, and let's take a look at, if you've got your scripture journal, look at Genesis 1, verse 2. And what do we have here? And I actually am going to wait for someone to shout it out. So in verse 2, where is God? Yes, hovering over what? Yes, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Chapter 1, verse 2 shows that God is hovering over. He's above the waters. He's above the earth. He's not down on earth. He is above it. But in chapter 2, God is among his creation. He's not above it. He's down here. I'm just going to let that go. He's down here on the earth. That's the first way that we see that God is personal, is that he takes himself out of above and he puts himself into the among. The next way that we see that God is personal is because of the way he is creating and interacting with creation. So 
We're going to be flipping back and forth between Genesis 2 and 1 a bit. So what is God doing in chapter 2, verse 7? If you can flip back over, chapter 2, verse 7, what's he doing? Then the Lord God... What? Form the man of dust. And what's the other thing he does in, in verse 7? He breathed life. Okay. What's he do in verse 8? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And then in verse 15, got to turn the page, verse 15, the Lord God did what to the man? And did what with him? Yeah. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. As Matt mentioned last week, that word put means to rest. So God is resting Adam into the garden. He's not dumping Adam into the garden. He's resting him there gently. Actually, let's, let's go one more. So go over to chapter 3, verse 8. Um, this is after Eve is made. And so it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God. What? what? I heard someone say it. Walking in the garden. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So he's forming, he's breathing, he's planting a garden, he's taking the man, he's putting the man, and he's walking in Genesis 3. That is very different language than what we see God doing in Genesis 1. So I will make you flip back again. Go ahead and flip back to Genesis 1. What's God doing in Genesis 1 verse 3? And God, what? And God said. And then in verse 6, and God said. In verse 9, and God said. And in verse 11, and God said. So God speaks, and then things happen. If we didn't have chapter 2, we'd assume that God made mankind very much the same way that he made everything else. He made the mountains and the stars by speaking. But that's not the case. Instead, chapter 2 shows us how God made the man with intention and care. He personally made Adam. And we'll see that he personally made Eve. So in verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, Where the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. That word formed is meant to make you think of, of a potter using their hands to mold clay. We'll actually see that word again in, in verse 19. I'll read it. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So there's something there though where we see God forming Adam and then we see God again forming animals to parade before Adam. But there's something missing when God makes the animals that's very present when God makes Adam. And that is God breathes life into Adam. So Adam gets some special creation treatment. Adam isn't the only one to get special creation treatment either. God, how God makes Eve is different than how he makes all of creation also. Eve is formed after God takes a rib out of Adam. Nothing and nobody else is made in this way that we see in creation. God forms Adam, makes little man mold out of the dust and breathes life into it and it's a living creature and then god takes the rib from adam and something and there's a woman god made adam and eve in a different way than all the other created things god was down on the earth when he made them he wasn't above them he was among them he was filling adam with breath and that just reveals to us how god is going to be personal with adam and eve even from the beginning all right. The next way that we see that God is personal is through his name in chapter 2. So looking at chapter 2, verse 4, what is the name of God in, in verse 4? Yeah, there you go, Jim. Yeah, the Lord God. And in verse 5, it says, for the Lord God. And verse 7, and the Lord God. And in verse 8, the Lord God. Verse 9, the Lord God. Let's see, where is it again? Uh, it's down in 15. Yep. And the Lord God took the man. In verse 16, the Lord God. So the Lord God is a translation of the words Elohim Yahweh. That's the personal name, the, the noun name of God. Um, it is the name of the God 
with whom you can have a relationship. So what is God's name in chapter 1, verse 1? So, yep, flip back. Let's go back. Chapter 1, verse 1, what's it say? In the beginning, who? Yep. So the word there for God is Elohim, the all-powerful God. And it's used over and over and over and over again in Genesis 1. And God created and God said and God saw and God separated and God called and God said. And then it's used about 35 times. But in chapter 2, there's a shift from calling God Elohim God, the all-powerful God. And in chapter 2, it's Elohim Yahweh, the Lord God. And that shift is almost like when you're a kid and you call your friend's dad Mr. Golden, uh, uh, other Mr. Golden. <laughs> um, and then you get, they grow up and you, you go like, hey, you can just call me Tyler. And there's, that sh- there's a shift there from kind of a, a sense of formality of Mr. Golden and suddenly it's just Tyler. So it's no longer formal, it's become personal. That's the shift that happened in chapter 2. And the way that we are meant to view and understand and relate to God should alter with that name change. So as we move from worlds exploding into existence in chapter 1 to God planting a garden for Adam in chapter 2, the name of God shifts from the all-powerful God to your personal God. And the third way that we see that God is personal in chapter 2 is because he's the Lord God of the man and the woman. All right, let's take a look at 2 verse 7 again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and the man became a living creature. Um, And then actually if we jump over to verse 22 of chapter 2, says, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This story is about specific people. The man and the woman. So how does that compare to the way that humans are referenced in Genesis 1? Because remember, we're comparing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The word here for man is the general term for mankind. Like one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's like the whole embodiment of, of humans. In verse 27, it doesn't say, a man and he and a woman he made. It's male and female he created them. It's very general terms. In Genesis 1, God, the way the picture of God is painted is that God is the God of all mankind. But in Genesis 2, we see that God is the Lord God of the man and the woman. God is more than the God of all mankind. He's the Lord God of the individual. He is close. He is personal. When God created the universe, which has more stars than we can possibly imagine, and planets that we can't even really begin to fathom, that was not the end of his power or his dominion. See, God is capable of creating and sustaining a universe and every human that will ever exist, and he's also capable of walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, personal, close. Church, I hope that you see this as good news, that we worship and praise a God, a Lord God, who is not only perfectly powerful, but perfectly personal. So, all right, real quick to sum up. Chapter one, God is powerful. Chapter two, God is, the Lord God is personal. Chapter one, God is above. Chapter two, the Lord God is among. Chapter 1, God speaks and creation bursts into existence. And in chapter 2, the Lord God forms the dust, plants a garden, and breathes life. Chapter 1, God is powerful and mighty and strong and capable of what we think is impossible. He establishes order out of nothing, gives all things its proper place and mission. And this this idea, the theological word for this is transcendent. 
that God's nature and power are, are independent from what we can see and what we can understand. That he is in control and has authority over everything. And chapter 1 does a really good job of showing God's transcendence, God's power. But if that's all that we know about God, we have an incomplete image of God. If we don't keep reading, we will miss out on a huge plot twist in the gospel story that happens in the second chapter of the book. Because the same God also presents himself as personal in chapter 2, that the Lord God can be close. The theological word for this is God's personalness, is, is his imminence, that God is present with creation in an intimate and personal way. And that's the amazing twist, is that God has all power, and is all personal. It is a good thing that God is revealing to us that he is a personal God. Because he's not impersonal. He's not unable to be reached. He is not the set it and forget it God who sits idly by after making the universe. He doesn't stay way out and above in the cosmos. But he's quick to reveal to us in the space of one chapter to the next that he desires closeness with us. That the Lord God wants us to think of him in that way. He isn't Mr. God anymore. He's Elohim Yahweh, the personal God who desires a relationship with his creation. So church, this morning, this month, this year, if you feel that God is distant and above us all, is letting us toil beneath him unnoticed, or that we are unable to get his attention, rejoice. Because if God is unchangeable, then his character revealed in chapter 2 means that his character is the same today as it was then. The Lord God desires a relationship not with humanity at large, just trying to count up how many worshipers that he has, but with you. He does this because he is among. He is near. He is close. He is personal. Chapter 2 also reveals something else about God. The Lord God draws close to be personal because he wants to provide. So the next point is the Lord God abundantly provides. I'm going to show you three ways that the Lord God is a generous provider according to Genesis 2. The Lord God is an abundant provider because he provides three things. A garden... Eve, and opportunities to image God. If you're taking notes, I'll just say that again. The Lord God is an abundant provider because he provides a garden, Eve, and opportunities to image God. So let's take a look at the first one, a garden. All right, crack open here. Scripture journals again. Let's look at Genesis 2 verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then in verse 16, flip a page, look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That word surely eat, that means you may unconditionally eat. Adam and eventually Eve were put, they were rested into a garden that God planted and then told to eat. Raise your hand if you've ever like babysat before. Anyone ever babysat? Okay. Anyone ever like house sat for someone? Keep your hands up. Anyone ever house sat? Or like pet sat, like you stayed at someone's house and took care of their animals? It doesn't always happen, but the best thing to hear is when they're about to leave and they say, oh, and help yourself to anything in the fridge. Ding, ding, ding. That was a mistake. I'm going to eat all your food. So imagine that feeling, only it's the perfect place to live. And there's everything that's good to eat. Matt joked that this is sort of like a swanky, all-you-can-eat buffet. But I think it's way more than that. I think what's described here is more like an all-inclusive resort. Everything has been paid for. And you can snorkel, eat, drink, nap, play bingo, rock climb. And the Lord God's abundance doesn't 
stop there with a nice garden full of good things to eat. It keeps going. Trees and plants need water and sunlight. Last I heard. Uh, God handled the sunlight part in Genesis 1. But what about water? How is the garden to be watered? What's it say in verse 10? What's flowing out of Eden? I'll wait for it. Verse 10. A what? A river flowed out of Eden to do what to the garden? Water the garden. Gardens, trees, plants need water. Lord God has already provided the water. Is the river sufficient to water the whole garden or will the man need to also dig a well? Yeah, it's actually a pretty pretty great river. Um, in verse 10, it says that it divides and becomes four rivers. Um, that's how good that, that river is. I, when you go, if you have it on your phone, you just take a look at the Euphrates River. I, uh, this is going to be an inside sermon. I was going to show pictures of what some of these rivers look like. Because when I think of a river, sometimes I think of like the river in Sykesville. And I'm like, oh yeah, look at this river. Like I can walk across it and like my, sh- my ankles get wet. Like that's not this kind of river. The Euphrates River at its like narrowest is like 500 feet narrow. It's huge. Like think Potomac think Grand Canyon like that's what the sort of river that you need to be thinking of when it says and a, and a guard and a river was there to water the garden so where is the garden is the garden in a good land or did God put the Garden of Eden in a bad neighborhood actually it's a pretty great neighborhood because there's gold verse 11 says that there is gold there Good gold, not like bad gold. Like, and there was bad gold in that neighborhood. Like, there is there is gold there in verse twelve, and the gold of that land is good. Anyone wearing jewelry? Jewelry's nice. God provided resources to make jewelry. There's delium to make myrrh. That's what delium is for. Myrrh. Myrrh smells good. Anyone put on deodorant or perfume today? I hope you put on deodorant today. Why? Because. Alex. (laughs) Because it smells good. So God provides something just for the pleasant smell. It says onyx stone or red gemstones are there. Precious stones. Why did the Lord God put those there? I like to think because they're beautiful. So there's a theme building here about the Lord God's provision. So here's what God could have said. It's Corby. Corby, come here. Because this is what God could have said to Adam after he made him. Hey, Corby, here's seeds. Uh, One is for cucumbers and the other is for a pumpkin plant that you can't eat. I want you to go and plant it and try not to starve to death before they grow. So enjoy the seed. No, they're, they're yours. You can keep them. That's what God could have done. He could have been like, I made you. Here's some seeds. Have at it. God could have said, all right, Adam, you need water for your crops. Go make yourself a bucket out of wood you don't have and walk to the nearest river. Good luck finding the nearest river. Adam, if you're wondering what fruit and vegetables are good to eat, good to eat, do a little trial and error. If you eat it, you get a rash and you die. Don't eat that one. Do you know how long it takes? Some of you do. You know how long it takes from a from a seed for a for a fruit tree to start producing enough fruit that you can eat it? Two years for peaches. And that's not like a big peach tree, that's like a little peach tree. It takes three years for grapes. It takes two to ten years for an apple tree to start making you apples. And knowing all of that. The Lord God takes the man, Adam, who hasn't done anything in his life apart from being made and gives him the perfect place to live, food to eat unconditionally. I am going to linger here a minute longer. I'm going to nail this point home. Does the Lord God give Adam some good trees? What's it say in verse 9? Yeah, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Apples, bananas, cherries, pineapples, guava, 
lemons, oranges, limes, figs, dates, olives, durian, plantains, pomegranates, mulberries, jackfruit, persimmons, starfruit, tamarind, longan, fruits that have gone extinct, fruits that you've never heard of, fruits that you can only find at the Asian market. They're all there. And that's just the fruits. I didn't even get into the vegetables. Cherries, cherry tomatoes, lettuces, cucumbers. Do you see how the Lord God is generous in his abundant provision for Adam? I mean, let me, let me go back. Let me paint this in a different way. Imagine this is what God had said to Adam. Adam, I made you. What more do you want? Wasn't that enough? Or what if God had told Adam and Eve, Good luck. I wish you the best. You are on your own. No, church, that's not what happened. Genesis 2 lays out, even from the beginning, that God is going to provide for us. And he's going to do it abundantly. The Lord God didn't just do the bare minimum to get Adam and Eve by. He provided for them with more than they needed, which is abundance. Every good tree in a great land with an incredible river. Physical needs met. Double met. Triple met. And that's just one way. That was the point one of one of the ways that God is providing in the story. And it could stop right there. And we would think, wow, God is so good. But then it keeps going. Let's take a look at another way that the Lord God provides for Adam. Let's take a look at 2 verse 18. We didn't, we didn't read it this morning, but we're going to read it now. Then the Lord God said in verse 18, chapter 2, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God abundantly provides Adam with Eve. That's the second way that we see that God is providing in this, chap- in this chapter. He provides Eve because he knows He knows it's not good for Adam to be alone and that Adam is going to need earthly community. It's an opportunity for Adam and Eve to experience community, like the community that God has with himself as the Spirit and the Father and the Son. It is just one more way that the Lord God provides everything and more for Adam. All right, so we have the point so far is how God is an abundant provider. We have God provided the garden, which includes every good tree and a good land with a great river. And God provided Eve. Those are the two things we have so far. The final thing that we're going to see is that God abundantly provides Adam with multiple ways to image God. There are ways that God provides Adam and then Eve with opportunities to image God, to look like God, to act like God, and represent God on earth. All right, this isn't a great analogy, but I'm going to do it anyways. World-renowned cellist Yo-Yo Ma has been playing cello for 60 years. He's 64. Imagine Yo-Yo Ma comes to you and says, I bequeath to you, I give you my 60 years of experience and expertise playing the cello. Go now and play cello like me. Go and show the world how good Yo-Yo Ma is at playing cello by playing cello like me now that you can. That's a fraction of what is transpiring when the Lord God gave Adam opportunities to image him. So here are the ways that we see Adam and Eve imaging God in chapter 2. The first one is that Adam gets to rest in the garden. So let's take a look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Because Matt talked about this last week, and it's important that we we hit on it today. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So how does Adam get to rest? Well, the fruit trees are planted and the garden is watered by the river. Yes, there is work for Adam to do. Adam's existence isn't only resting, 
but a lot of the work has already been done by God. Adam can rest in the garden. All right, the next point, Adam names the animals. The next point on how uh, God is giving Adam opportunities to image him is that Adam names the animals. Let's take a look at verse 20. Yep, we're flipping around a whole lot. Verse 20 of chapter 2. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And here we see that God tells Adam to name all the animals and Adam does. In chapter 1, we see God naming his creation. I'll just read out to you some of it. You know, and God called the light day and he called the darkness night. And then he called the expanse heaven in verse 8 and... He called them seas, and he saw that it was good. So God names things, and then God gives Adam the opportunity to name things. It's just one way that Adam is given an opportunity to image God, act like God. So Adam and Eve, they get to rest in the garden. Adam gets to name things. And another way that Adam images God is by being a gardener. We already know that God was a gardener. From chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, when it says that God made every plant. And then we see it again in in, in our text in Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden. So God was a gardener again in in chapter 2. So what about Adam? How is Adam going to be a gardener? Let's take a look at verse 5. This one takes a little bit of explanation. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So the kind of plants here referenced in those verses are those requiring cultivation, because God made other green plants before that. He made other green plants in in Genesis 1 and told the animals to eat those. But the kind of plants that God is talking about here did not grow until there was a man to take care of them. So God waited until after he had made Adam to create a garden that required cultivation and work to sustain it so that Adam has an opportunity to be a gardener just like God. It was like God said, none of the plants that I have made can exist without me. Just like these plants requiring a gardener, they won't exist without you, Adam. So Adam and Eve rest like God. Adam names things like God. And Adam and Eve, they get to be gardeners like God. And there's one more thing that God provides in this text that helps them image God. Let's take a look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the last thing that we see God providing for Adam is the opportunity to work, to work the garden. So where have we seen God working? I just read it a second ago and talking about when God rested. So we know that God was working all in Genesis 1, but Genesis chapter 2 really just calls it out. Chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And then in verse 3, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation, all the work that he had done. God worked. Adam worked. The work God had in store for Adam and Eve wasn't busybody work. It was work that was meant to enrich them, fill them with joy and purpose because they were imaging God while they did it. Church, um, hopefully this isn't a controversial statement, but work is a good thing. God did it first and saw that it was good to work. And so God gave us work so we can image him, so we can be like him. And when I think, oh, I'd rather like to be like God, I am not thinking about working hard. But that's one of the ways that God provided for Adam. 
The Lord God provided Adam with the opportunity to work so that Adam could image God. It is not lost on me, church, that last week Matt was talking about how important rest is and how important rest is for us and how important it is that God tells us that we should rest. And now I'm talking about work. Work is not your money job. Work are the tasks before you. Church, work is another way that God is still providing to us to this day. He's providing us with opportunities to image him through whatever our work is. So you remember when we studied Colossians? Maybe it felt like forever ago, but remember when we were in Colossians? There's a verse in chapter 3 that really, really fits here. I think it sums up what work is. And um, when verse 23 starts, so it's chapter 3, verse 23 is what I'm pulling from. And uh, when this verse starts, the author of Colossians is talking about bondservants and workers. And then they say this, verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Whatever you do. Church, whatever you do. If you are retired, or you're a student, a full-time parent, you're a teacher, you're a manager, you're a friend, you're a neighbor, you're a child of God. Your work in that role images God. When you are at your money job, you are imaging our working God. When you are at school, middle schoolers, high schoolers, when you are at school doing home work, you are imaging God. Parents, when you are teaching your children, you are imaging God. When you're at your friend's house helping move furniture, you are imaging God to them through the work that you are doing for them. When you clean up your house and the messes that your kids leave behind, you are telling the world about the God who made order out of chaos. You are imaging God then. When you plant your vegetables in your garden, you're revealing God's character to those around you and to yourself. Uh, You're imaging God the gardener. Everyone, when you put food on the table, you are reminding yourself and you're reminding the world around you about how God provides. You are imaging God the abundant provider. When you watch your grandkids for the afternoon, you are imaging God through that work. When you are talking to your neighbors, seeking to encourage them to love the Lord, you are imaging God. And when you are generous with your children, when you are generous to your friends, you image the God who was so over the top, abundantly generous with Adam. When we work, we show each other and remind each other of our God who worked. And the Lord God is the one providing us with that work. All right. The Lord God provided the garden with every good tree and every fruit and vegetable that we can think of and more. The Lord God provided Adam with Eve. The Lord God provided them with opportunities to image him through rest, through naming things, chance to be gardeners, and a, and a chance to work. The Lord God provided in those ways because he is personal and he cares about us and he wants to be close and he wants to have a relationship. So here we are in chapter 2 of the whole Bible, and God has revealed his character. He's powerful. He's personal. He's our provider. Church, he's the whole deal. Like God's not letting off the, the gas, and we're just on chapter 2 of Genesis. You know how I told you there were two points? Uh, well, there's a third point. There is a third point that is as out of place in this two-point sermon as it is in the text. There's something in this story that doesn't belong in a story about God's personal nature and his generous provision. Let's take a look at verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and what? Evil. Kind of sticks out, doesn't it? Evil's not the only thing that doesn't belong in the story of God's goodness. Skip down to verse 16 and 17. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death. Evil and death? If we were reading this for the first time, if we were Israelites hearing this for the first time, we would be screaming out, Tell me about the evil, please. Why is it here? What does it mean? What does it mean you will surely die? What's Adam going to do? Is he going to disobey? What will happen next? Someone please tell me what the evil and death thing are. Well, church, we we know what's going to happen next. Um, spoiler alert for Genesis 3. If you haven't read it or haven't heard it, we, we find out that Adam and Eve are going to mess up. That evil and death are going to stay in the picture forever. And we know that after they mess up, and this is sarcasm, church, and we know that after they mess up and ruin this perfect thing, here's the sarcasm part, that's when God decides he wants nothing to do with humans. And he stops being personal. And God never provided for us ever again. That was our one shot at being with God. Sarcasm part is over. Because that's not what happens. But that's what we expect if we were reading the story for the first time. That's what we deserve. If we break God's laws. See, the amazing thing is that even after an Adam and Eve sin and their perfect relationship with God is tarnished forever, the amazing thing is that God doesn't cease being personal. He doesn't give up on providing. Because in Genesis 2, God is revealing to us that this is how he always operates. He's always personal and he's always going to abundantly provide. And we know that God doesn't change his character. So church, we're lucky because we know exactly the steps that God is going to, conta- going to take to continue to be personal and to provide for us. Because we have the rest of the Bible where we continually see God's personal nature and the provision that he provides for his people. And then God takes it one step further. Because the Lord God steps out of heaven. He's born a baby, lives among humans, and dies among humans. Does it get more personal than Jesus? When we were broken sinners, incapable of saving ourselves, God provided Jesus to be our substitute sacrifice. The evil in this story that is so out of place Well, Jesus heads off against it and vanquishes it at the cross. The death that doesn't belong, Jesus takes it on himself. And then he triumphs over it by raising himself back to life. And just like God's provision didn't stop at the bare minimum for Adam and Eve and kept going on and on and on, even after God provides Jesus for us to be our perfect salvation, God provides even more. What we'll discover as we read Genesis is that because of Adam's sin, he's cut off from the tree of life that God put into the garden. So instead of having access to the tree of life, Adam's going to die. But that isn't the end of the story for the tree of life. See, God has a plan for the tree of life. And God has a plan to provide for us again and forever. In Revelation 21, Revelation 21 describes how God will one day create a new heaven and a new earth. And Revelation 22 has a description of what the new earth is going to be like. A description that might seem really familiar in light of Genesis 2. So as I read these words, listen for anything that reminds you of Genesis 2. So I'm going to read this out slowly, and you just see if you can catch the words that seem familiar. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Did you see the rivers? You see the good fruit? You see the tree of life? God's plan is to one day have all his sons and daughters bought with the blood of Jesus with him in a perfect personal relationship where death and evil don't belong. And in God's new earth, he will abundantly provide for us as he has always done, just like he did at the beginning. Church, let's pray together. God, we thank you that you didn't cease being personal, that you didn't cease being our abundant provider because of our sin because of Adam's sin. That time and time again, as we read through scripture, we see that you are always our personal God, that you are always abundantly providing for us. And God, we thank you for the so many ways that you have given us opportunities to work and to image you. God, let us not take that lightly. Let us not consider that as we live and as we exist and as we breathe and as we love our families and we love our neighbors and as we, as we work in all of our work, whatever we do, it's our, our opportunity to image you and you are kind enough to provide us with that opportunity. That when you made us, you were thinking, I want to make them with the opportunity to image me. So God, thank you. Thank you, God that you are personal with us. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you are among us. Thank you for sending Jesus to be among us. And God, we thank you that you are our abundant provider, that you have abundantly provided our means of salvation through Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you. And we praise your name. God, help us worship you In your son's precious name, we pray. Amen.